Hey, it's been fun in this series uh, that Pastor Johnny entitled In the Gap as we have looked at how we are to live our lives in the gap. How, how do we live as those who are here on this earth that are called to stand in the gap for others? And in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed six different areas that showed his, his very radical ethical standards in this kingdom that he came to introduce. Pastor Johnny covered anger. He covered adultery, divorce last week. He did swearing an oath, and he's just done a, a, a wonderful job with these teachings. And today, I've been left with these last two. They are retribution and loving our enemy. So we're covering in Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48 today. And we're going to address these last two ethical standards, how to live in the gap. And then at the end of the message, we're going to kind of zoom back and look at Jesus' ethics from a broader perspective as we examine this final verse. And I think it'll help us with our general understanding of what the gospel actually is. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word can change us today. And so we submit our hearts to the lessons to be learned today. We thank you for your anointing on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the first of these last two. That is retribution. How should we respond when we are wrong? When we are living in the gap, how do we respond or react when someone does something wrong to us? So let's look at verse 38. I'm reading out of the Passion translation. I like to mix up translations from time to time because sometimes we get used to hearing things a certain way and it becomes rote to us. So that's why we often mix up the translations and, and present in different ones. So out of the Passion Translation, verse 38, your ancestors have also been taught, take an eye in exchange for an eye and a tooth in exchange for a tooth. However, I say to you, don't repay an evil act with another evil act. But whoever insults you by slapping you on the right cheek, turn the other to him as well. If someone is determined to sue you for your coat, give him the shirt off your back as a gift in return. And should people in authority take advantage of you, do more than they demand. Learn to generously share what you have with those who ask for help, and don't close your heart to the one who comes to borrow from you. This is heavy. Heavy words. We could call this the principle of proportionate retribution. In other words, this is an Old Testament law that Jesus, and when he said, your ancestors have told you, he was quoting the law. It's a law that assures that the retribution for a crime is proportionate to the crime. That's very important here. Or we would say in our vernacular today, it's the assurance that the punishment will fit the crime. But their ancestors, the Jews, along with the teachers in Jesus' day, had taken this law out of its context. And we know from our teaching around here, what happens when you take the Scripture out of its context. That's one of the, the greatest violations that we ever commit in the teaching ministry in the church. Context is important. And here the law is making sure that the society is not made up of a bunch of people 
who are running around extracting vengeance on their enemies, on those who wronged them. Let me give you an example from Leviticus 24 and verse 17. Anyone who takes another person's life must be put to death. Anyone who kills another person's animal must pay for it in full. A live animal for the animal that was killed. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury afflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. Whoever kills an animal must pay for it in full, but whoever kills another person must be put to death. This same standard applies both to native-born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Now, the law of Moses here is determining that these issues that happen are to be taken up in a civil court. That is the context here. Don't take these passages out of their context. The context is a civil court. A person is going to the civil court to, to seek justice. That's what it's about. Justice is not to be carried out by the offended party. And the main point that Jesus is addressing is people who take justice in their own hands. And then he tells us here that in a civil court, the punishment then must always fit the crime. So he's addressing us as individuals not to take vengeance. And then he's saying that in the civil courts, the punishment must fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But the teachers of the law had completely missed the spirit of the law and they had taken matters into their own hands. And Jesus wants our hearts to be free of malice toward those who harm us. He doesn't want us running around exacting vengeance for ourselves. He wants us to go to the civil courts. Jesus knows that if we harbor unforgiveness, we might want them dead. And death would be an unjust retribution for somebody who just stole my cow. We might have our cow stolen and want to kill somebody because they stole our cow. And Jesus knew that. So Jesus is telling us here, along with the Old Testament law, keep your hearts right, even toward those who harm you. We are told here to turn our injustices over to the justice of God. And sometimes that doesn't even come in this lifetime. But Jesus calls us to acts of kindness so that while the courts, the civil courts, are deciding, we won't become bitter. And we won't spend the rest of our lives stewing in anger and bitterness towards someone who has wronged us. And maybe we'll feel the civil courts have wronged us. Jesus knows that we have got to turn the other cheek, that we have got to release them, we've got to forgive them, we've got to bless them, or it will destroy our own lives. Now, I want to say, this is not a call to live a life with no boundaries, where we let people walk all over us. People need to be held accountable for their actions against us. There are laws in our land to protect us from the abuse of others. Here's one of the examples that Jesus used in verse 42. He said, learn to generously share what you have with those who ask for help. And don't close your heart to the one who comes to borrow from you. Now, if we take that 
just by itself, that means we're supposed to give to anybody who ever asks us for anything and allow ourselves to be walked over and taken advantage of. All of you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. You've been taken advantage of. I mean, there are those in our culture who feel it is their right to take from everyone else because they are entitled to it. And the Bible addresses that very thing. He says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I thank God for programs in our culture that provide for people who cannot work due to physical, emotional, mental disabilities. In this case, people absolutely deserve to be helped. And Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always, and we should help them when we can. But this command here, along with other biblical commands, was taken way out of context. In fact, in the 13th century in the church, there came about the rise of what was called the mendicant orders of the Catholic Church. These were orders of priests. They were called the mendicants. The word mendicant actually means to beg. So it was a begging order of the church. So they had these itinerant friars who were called begging friars, and they renounced wealth. They renounced the private ownership of land, even though the private ownership of land is very biblical. And they traveled the countryside dressed in poor, ragged clothing, begging other people for sustenance. And it was thought that they would be more spiritual, they'd be more like Jesus when they lived like this. Never mind, there's no instance in Scripture where Jesus ever begged for anything. But they used the Scripture from Acts chapter 2, where the believers had all things in common. And they said, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. The problem is, they didn't have anything, so they lived off what was yours. <laughs> and it created a lot of controversy in the, in the 13th century, and for good reason. My point is, be careful not to get hyper-literal about Jesus' words here, and go around giving people a reason to slap you in the face so that you can turn the other cheek. Don't go around hoping that your coat gets stolen so you can give away your shirt also. Don't go around looking to be abused by authorities so you can give the authorities more than they even ask of you. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't take justice into your own hands. There are healthy boundaries that all of us need to have when it comes to blessing other people. The point he's making is that our hearts should never be filled with vengeance. When we are mistreated, and we will be, we, we are not to take the posture of retribution, but rather we are to make sure that our hearts are right. We are to bless our enemies and depend on the civil courts to protect us. There may be times when God speaks to you to be extravagant in your generosity towards someone who treats you badly, but this is not a call to be a doormat. I want to make that very clear. It is a call to allow God to have the final word when it comes to justice when we are wronged. And so Jesus tells them that their ancestors missed the spirit of the law when they chose self-retribution over allowing the civil authorities to administer justice. And when the civil authorities don't bring justice, we need to know God will ultimately do so, though it may not be in this lifetime. So bottom line is trust God. Trust God with justice. You may not see it in this lifetime, but trust Him. He'll take care of you.
That's what he's talking about here when he talks about retribution. Now let's move on to the next, the final one of these uh, points. And that is loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor. Matthew 5.43. Your ancestors have also been taught, love your neighbors and hate the one who hates you. However, I say to you, love your enemy. Bless the one who curses you. Do something wonderful for the one who hates you. And respond to the very ones who persecute you by praying for them. For that will reveal your identity as children of your heavenly Father. He is kind to all by bringing the sunrise to warm and the rainfall to refresh, whether a person does what is good or evil. And what reward do you deserve if you only love the lovable? Do not, don't even the tax collectors do that? How are you different from others if you limit your kindness only to your friends? Don't even the ungodly do that? Since you are children of a perfect Father in heaven, you are to be perfect like Him. Now, the law of retribution was taken out of context by their ancestors. This addition was made up entirely. The law never said, hate the person that hates you. The law said, love your neighbor as yourself. The law never said, hate the person who hates you. So this wasn't taken out of context. This was Scripture added to. And of course, the church never does that today. We never add to the Scripture, do we? So here's an example of a law that addresses both retribution and loving your neighbor. Back in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, way back then, Moses made it clear that we are to love our neighbor. But fallen men, as you know, are always looking for a way to sidestep the responsibility that God puts on us, God's standard. And so that led very logically to debates among the teachers of the law as to who would be considered your neighbor. Interesting. And you remember this from Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, you got it. Correct. He said, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, and this was not a new question. This had been circulating for centuries. Who is my neighbor? He's trying to, stumble, he's trying to get Jesus to stumble on his word so he could create division in the atmosphere. He is justifying himself. In other words, here's a man who's having a problem loving his neighbor, most likely, so he's trying to pull Jesus into this ancient controversy. Now, by this time in Israel's history, it was determined in Jesus' day that your neighbor pretty much had to be a Jew. Your neighbor had to be a fellow Jew, certainly not a Gentile. Some of the Pharisees, of course, took it even further, and they said it was only certain Jews who would be considered your neighbor. 
basically other Pharisees like them, people who believed the way they did. They were their neighbors. And Jesus absolutely devastated this flawed reasoning with a parable that he told called the parable of the Good Samaritan. We know the parable. Most of you know it well. And a man is traveling in this parable from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by robbers who left him for dead. A priest came along, a man of God under the law, and he did nothing to help him, followed by a Levite, another member of the priestly family, probably on their way to the temple to do their duty uh, in, the, in the temple sacrificial system. But a Samaritan, one who would have been despised by the Jews, stopped and bandaged his wounds. He put him on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he could recuperate, left money there, and he said, if he owes any more when I come back through, I'll make sure that you're paid. And Jesus asked this question, who was neighbor to the man? Well, the answer was obvious. It was the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to the expert in the law, you go and do the same then. You go and live according to this standard. Now, this is radical, as many of Jesus' words were. For centuries, they had defined their neighbor as one of their own. Certainly not a Gentile. For centuries, they had taken the simple command to love their neighbor and added the phrase to justify themselves and hate your enemies. Totally wrong. It was socially acceptable for Jews in those days to hate people who were different than them. And Jesus was the first one to teach that we were to see our neighbor in every human being. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Matthew, writes this, and I quote, It was in the midst of this intensely narrow-minded, exclusivistic, and intolerant environment that Jesus carried on his ministry. All around him were those walls and fences. He came for the very purpose of bursting those barriers so that love, pure, warm, divine, infinite would be able to flow straight down from the heart of God and hence from His own marvelous heart into the hearts of men. His love overleaped all the boundaries of race, nationality, party, age, sex, etc. What Jesus is teaching here, folks, there is no room for hating your enemy. God never gave us permission to do that. Jesus reiterated the law of God that we are to love our neighbor. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he actually included our enemies in his definition of who our neighbor is. Let's bring it forward to today. Our nation is in the worst turmoil that I have seen in my lifetime. Obedience to this single command could completely conquer the division that we are experiencing overnight. It could change it. You see, the problem is we all love our neighbor until somebody messes with our definition of our neighbor. Neighbors are those who live nearby us, in proximity to us, but neighbors don't live with us. My neighbors don't live with me. My neighbors live near me. 
And they are not responsible to live by my rules or to share my opinions on politics or in social matters. They don't answer to me for where they work or how they vote or what they believe. They are separate from me and my family. They are independent entities who can think and believe as they see fit. Your neighbors and my neighbors include those whom you are tempted to hate because of their differences. In our minds, we are the standard of normalcy and acceptability, and people are our enemies to the degree that they stray from that. The world revolves around us and our opinions. Loving your neighbor means loving people outside of your little piece of ideological real estate. In Jesus' economy, your neighbor and your enemy are the same person. Think about that. Your neighbor and your enemy can be the same person. If you are a conservative, your neighbor is a liberal. If you are a liberal, your neighbor is a conservative. In this day and age, if you are a Democrat, your neighbor is a Republican. And if you're a Republican, your neighbor is a Democrat. If you are a racist, your neighbor is the race you despise. Your neighbor is different than you. Your neighbor is not likely someone who worships with you in your local church. I mean, look around at these folks here. They're, they're wonderful people. They're, they're family members, really. They're family members. It's pretty easy to love them, but the call of Jesus here is to love the unlovable. And the spirit of intolerance that plagued ancient Israel is the same spirit that is plaguing America today. This is our problem. We have lost tolerance for one another. And as Christians, we dare not fall into this trap. It's very important that we don't. Jesus tells us why. Look at verse 45 again of Matthew 5. For this will reveal your identity as children of your heavenly Father. He is kind to all bringing the sunrise to warm and the rainfall to refresh, whether a person does what is good or evil. What reward do you have if you only love the lovable? Don't even the tax collectors do that? How are you any different from others if you limit your kindness only to your friends? Don't even the ungodly do that? Jesus says, this is important because this reveals your true identity as a child of God. If you can love your neighbor, you are proving you are a child of God. And if you can't, you better look really hard at your heart. When we genuinely love our neighbor, we are displaying a Christ-like love, not the conditional love that so many people have. And Jesus didn't get hung up on who deserved his love and who didn't. He went on to say that the Father brings the sunrise to warm and the rainfall to refresh people who act both good and bad. Theologians call this common grace. 
common grace. The Bible says in the King James, this passage, it might sound a little more familiar to you, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You've heard that phrase. That is called common grace. The rain that falls on the godly farmer's crops also falls on the ungodly farmer down the road. The same rain. The sun that brings those crops to fruition along with the rain shines on the godly farmer's farm and the ungodly farmer's farm down the road. Common grace. God is good. We all share a degree of the grace of God. And he goes on to say that we should not expect a reward for loving, lovable people. You don't get rewarded for loving, lovable people. Even the tax collectors can do that. Again, a reference to the most despised people in their culture. Even the tax collectors can love the lovable. Loving the lovable is the lowest form of love. It is love. Loving the lovable is the lowest form of love. The higher expressions of love are directed toward our enemies. So here we are in the gap with a radical standard to live by. Some of these standards seem to be too much for us. They are a call to a way of life that seems humanly impossible. And I might add that this way of life is humanly possible. You've got to get this. It is humanly possible. Impossible. Jesus finishes this part of his Sermon on the Mount with a real clincher. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time on this one verse, verse 48. Since you are children of a perfect Father in heaven, you are to be perfect like him. Now, I don't know about you, but this passage was hard enough till this point. And now you're telling me, I've got to be perfect like him. The Greek word here is teleos. It means complete. It has a connotation of perfection, but really more the, the idea of being a complete person. We use the word integrity to describe this. Uh, integrity, Pastor Johnny referred to it last week. The word integrity comes from the word integer, and an integer in mathematics is what? It is a whole number. It is not a fraction. A person of integrity is a whole person, an unfractured person. And God wants us to be complete, and that is the standard that He has set. That includes the ultimate perfection that will stand in one day before Him. But how we get there is vitally important. One of the beauties of God's eternalness is that God sees past, present, and future as one picture. He doesn't see them separate like we do. When God looks at you, He can see your past. He sees where you are in your heart right now, but He also, those of you who have faith in Christ, He also sees you perfect before the throne of God. I think His eternal vision is what makes Him so, so patient and long-suffering with our stuff that we deal with. God wants us to be complete. But how we get there really matters. Do we simply take these ethical standards that Jesus presents to us and white-knuckle our way through life? Do we strive for perfection by pushing ourselves to do our best in our own strength to obey Him? Well, apparently, 
A lot of American Christians think so. A new survey just came out, was conducted by the Cultural Research Center, George Barna's organization, and it revealed that slightly more than half of Christians in America said they believe that someone can attain their salvation by doing good and by being good. They can be saved by being good. In other words, by their good works. That's scary. 41% of evangelical Christians said that. 44% of mainline, mainline Protestant denominational people said that. 46% of Pentecostals said you can get to heaven by good works. 70% of Catholics think that heaven can be attained by being a good person alone. As for Americans in general, 58% of Americans now believe no absolute moral truth exists. 58% don't believe in a standard of truth. That blows my mind because supposedly over half of us are Christians. 77% of Americans say that right and wrong are determined by factors other than the Bible. 59% of Americans said that the Bible is not God's authoritative word. 69% of Americans said that people are basically good. The problem is that basically good, after the verse I just read you, basically good is not good enough. Jesus set the standard at completeness, wholeness, and ultimately perfection. Is there anyone here who has attained that yet? You're dismissed. You can go ahead home. You don't need us. <laughs> no. There are none of us here. We haven't attained that. But the gospel, as we preach it here and understand it, is that Jesus did for us, and I've said this 500 times from this pulpit, and you'll hear it until the last time I preach here. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect life of obedience to the law, and in so doing, He fulfilled the law. The good news of the gospel is you can't do it. Jesus did it. The good news is you can't do it. Because Scripture says in Romans that if we offend the law in just one point, we're guilty of the whole thing. <laughs> you only get one area of offense. Go ahead and back and read the law and tell me how you're doing. If we offend it in one point, we're guilty of the whole thing. In other words, Without Jesus, we're in trouble. And this is where faith comes in. We put our trust in Christ. And there's a great exchange that takes place. I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 1 through 6. This is a very familiar passage, but again, I want to read it from a different translation because it'll help you uh, to not to get stuck in you. Some of you could quote this from memory, but you don't believe it. You know what I mean? It happens to us sometimes. We're so familiar with Bible verses, we don't really believe them. We can quote them, but are we living them? 
So in Romans 8, so now the case is closed. What case? He's, he's building a case for how we can have right standing with God in the first seven chapters. Now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One. For the law of the Spirit of life flowing through the anointing of Jesus has liberated us from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law was unable to accomplish because the law was limited by the weakness of human nature. In other words, we just failed all the time at the law. We couldn't keep it. All those years of Israel's history in the Old Testament, they were, the purpose of that was to prove that man can't live the law. Hundreds of years of it. And we read it and say, oh, what nasty people. That's the point. We can't do it. When you read the Old Testament law and the, the history of Israel's failures, that's the point. Don't miss it. We can't do it. Here's the next verse. Yet, God sent His Son in human form to identify with human weakness. Clothed with humanity, God's Son gave His body to be the sin offering so that God could once and for all condemn the guilt and power of sin. So now every righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled through the anointed one, the Jesus who obeyed the law, right? Living His life in us. And we are free to live not according to our flesh, I love this, but by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. Wow. I want to boil this all down for you. It's simply saying here, you cannot possibly live the Christian life, but Jesus can. And he came to this earth and he lived in a perfect obedience to the law. Then he became the sin offering, taking upon himself all of yours and my, our, all of our broken law, attitudes, and actions. And he carried them to his cross, and he died and rose again and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to give us the power to live the Christian life. You can't do it, but Jesus can through you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now there is no accusing voice condemning us. When we embrace Christ by faith, we die to our past. We receive the life-giving Holy Spirit who empowers us to live a life of obedience. It's not always easy. It's difficult to make the right choices sometimes. We still struggle, but we have the power within us to say yes to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made the only one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness, because we couldn't do it, might become the righteousness of God through our union with Him. This is the great exchange, and this is the good news of the gospel. He took our sins, He gave us His righteousness. The Christian life is not about what you do, but what He has done. And the only way it can be lived is through the power of the only one who ever lived it. That's Jesus. But we like to perform, don't we? <laughs> we? So we look at the commands of Scripture as these morbid rules that we grudgingly perform so that we can maybe someday 
become righteous. The truth is that if you are in Christ, you have already been declared righteous by God. God sees you standing one day perfected in the image of Christ. That is your position in Christ today. And I realize that may not be your experience 24-7. We all struggle with issues in our lives. But the main issue that Paul addressed in Romans 8 is that we have to choose to live by the power of the Holy Spirit instead of on our own strength. But according to the polls, a huge number of American Christians believe that we can get to heaven by doing good works. I want to tell you, if, if keeping the rules pleased Jesus... He would never have chosen fishermen and tax collectors in this ragtag band of guys that he called his disciples. I mean, if keeping rules pleased him, he would have, it would have been the 12 Pharisees who were the apostles upon which he built the church. They were the best rule keepers of the day. They built a system of rules around the rules of the law. They built a fence so they wouldn't even get close to the law a bunch of rules, and they turned the law into an early version of the IRS tax code. They complicated everything, frustrated everything. These rule keepers were the arch enemies of Jesus. He called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They seem to have missed the fact that their ancestors had centuries of practice with the law, and that outward obedience wasn't working. And the reason these Pharisees' hearts weren't changed is because that's what Jesus came to do, to change them from the inside out. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. I've been a Christian. In a few months, I will, have, I will be a Christian for 50 years this December. And I am still a work in progress. I want to tell you what, I've got a long way to go. Just ask my wife. And it gets complicated because we have these ruts formed in our brains that keep us steering down the road of performance. I was thinking of this this week. Some years ago, my brother Gary and I went to Siberia to teach a course at a Bible college there. And it was February. The temperatures dropped to minus 25 degrees. They didn't salt the roads there, and frankly, it was too cold for salt to melt anything, so it wouldn't have helped anyway. So the snow just continually packed down from the cars in the city, and uh, they formed these ruts, and you didn't even have to steer your car when you're going down the street. You're in these wheel ruts, and they're ice, and you just go, go shooting right along. They would throw some sawdust in the bottom of them from time to time, but you didn't, you didn't have to intentionally do anything, just go down the road, and the ruts would take care of things for you. Now, if you wanted to take a different road, you had to intentionally go through the, the shaking and the rocking of turning out of those ruts and choosing your own destination. And we have got ruts in our brains. Ruts of performance, and some of that came from the church you grew up in. Some of that stuff you were affected by, you were taught this way. Ruts of performance. And if we let go of the wheel and drive in our normal pattern, we will stay in the ruts of performance for the rest of our lives. And we can go to heaven that way. As long as we have true faith in Christ. 
But we have to make a conscious choice to be free and to allow the Lord to get us out of the ruts and into a life of freedom. You see, people get scared when you preach the gospel like this, but they say, well, then you're, you're preaching this grace and it gives everybody a ticket to live according to their selfish desires. No, that's not true. The grace of God, this understanding of the gospel, is not a ticket to live from my selfish desires. It is something that empowers me to choose life. It gives me the power when Christ is in me. gives me the power to choose life. Listen to Titus 2, one of the most important grace passages in all of the New Testament, verse 11. God's marvelous grace has manifested in person, bringing salvation for everyone. This same grace teaches us, get this, this same grace teaches us how to live each day as we turn our backs on ungodliness and indulgent lifestyles. It doesn't say there are no more choices after grace. We still struggle with things. Turning our backs on ungodliness and indulgent lifestyles equips us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. For we continue to look forward to the joyful fulfillment of our hope in the dawning splendor of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus, the Anointed One. He sacrificed Himself for us so that we might purchase, He might purchase our freedom from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people who are His very own, passionate to do what is beautiful in His eyes. The ethical standards of Jesus that we've been preaching are only possible when we choose to live a life empowered by the life of the Spirit. You've got to make the choices. Make the shift, I, I implore you, make the shift out of the ruts of performance and choose a life of dependence. Dependence upon the Holy Spirit within you. That's the only way you'll ever be free. When you embrace Jesus as Savior, God empowers you to live for Him through a power that is not your own. Now you are free to do good works, but not good works so that you can attain righteousness. Good works are the result of a union with Christ where we allow the Holy Spirit to live with us. We don't get to God by performing good works. When we connect with Him through the Holy Spirit, good works come out of that relationship. I close with a familiar passage, but again, I'm reading it in a different translation. In the Passion, lest it become too familiar. It's the passage in Galatians 2 and 20. We know it where it says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. I want to read it in this translation. I want you to get the impact of it. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of His cross crucified me with Him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the Anointed One lives His life through me. We live, Jesus and I, we live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much 
that he gave himself for me and dispenses his life into mine. I want to ask you today, does that sound like better news than working my way to heaven? Does that really sound like the good news? That is the good news. It's not about performance. It's about what Jesus did that makes all the difference. Father, we come to you today. We live in a nation that is filled with turmoil and confusion and anger bitterness, violence now. And we call upon you to help. And we make a choice here today to do the part that you've called us to play in all of this mess. And is not to seek retribution for our being wronged. To really love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. So I ask you, Lord, if there's anyone listening to this message today who has been relying on their own good works to save them, I pray they would stop doing that today and that you would draw them to yourself and that they would make a choice to rest in the work that Christ has already done for them. And if that's you, just in your heart, pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I give up trying to strive to be a better person, I choose to die to myself and to receive the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit to live in me and through me. I choose your righteousness and not my own self-righteousness, which can't lead to anything good. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I invite you in. Come and change my life and give me the grace the ability, the divine enablement to say no to sin so that I'm overcoming sin by your strength and not my own. So I thank you, Lord, for this salvation. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you have received the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and uh, you need to get connected with people who can help you walk that out in the relationship with them and the study of the Scripture. But for those of us who do know Christ, I assume that to be probably all of us here today, um, you're going to have an opportunity. In fact, Helen prayed it in the time before the service. I was thinking it, and she prayed it. And she said, Lord, remind us this week, even if it's as far down the road as Friday, remind us of something we heard. And I'm telling you, you will have opportunities this week to practice the words of Jesus, to live in the gap as Jesus told us to. And when you are tempted to take justice into your own hands, or when you are tempted to despise someone because they're different, remember that Jesus said, your neighbor and your enemy are the same person in many cases. So love them. Choose the way of love. Let's stand together. I'm going to dismiss us today in prayer. Father, we are, are so thankful for the, the goodness of God. We humble our hearts before you, Lord. Those of us who are believers have the life of Christ in us right now. 
And when we go from the doors of this building, we go to be the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones in the world around us. Help us this week to live by what we heard. May the truth of your word so permeate us that we would begin, that you would begin a revolution in us of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. So just grace each of us this week with the power to say no to temptation, to say yes to righteousness. I pray for protection and blessing upon every individual, every family, everyone connected with our church here in our community, those who are watching online. Let the blessing of God be on them this week. Let them have an amazing week in your presence. In Jesus' name.